from Selma, Alabama, would you please welcome storyteller Miss Catherine Tucker Windham. I can't believe I'm 92, and but I am. And uh, my father said to me, but he says, said when you're building your life, the most important things are the four L's. And the first L is listening, and it's a rare thing these days. Listening, listening to the human voice, listening to one person talking to another person, listening. We have forgotten how to listen, how to sit down and talk and have a good time listening. My daddy said, listen. God gave you two ears and one mouth, and he expected you to use them in that proportion. (laughs) And the next L is learning. You have to learn something different all your life. Don't ever quit learning. And laughing is the third L, he said. We've all got to laugh, laugh at ourselves, laugh at something every day. The world is a magical, wonderful place, he says, but we need to laugh together. Don't laugh at people, my father said. You laugh with people, and you can never hate anyone you've really laughed with. Laughter binds people together. The most important L is loving, loving, that God put us here to love each other to enjoy each other, to help each other, to laugh together, to learn together, to listen together, but to love each other. And there's nothing that says I love you more pleasantly and more plainly than storytelling. Everybody here has stories that you need to tell, and now is the time to do it. Tell stories and tell each one with love, ending with I love you. Welcome, everyone, to True Tales Live on stage. I'm Amy Antonucci, the True Tales Live announcer, here to introduce our show to you. Um, We just heard Catherine Tucker Windham speaking at the age of 92 at the 2010 Alabama Storytelling Festival about the importance of stories. This is a a sentiment that we at True Tales wholeheartedly believe, and it's part of what motivates us to continue producing True Tales. The stories that you're going to hear today will be true first-person experience stories, which means that our tellers have had this story happen to them. Each story has a limit of 10 minutes for the telling. While we encourage the development of storytelling skills with monthly workshops and other assistance to tellers, this is not a competition. We have no ranking or scoring or judging at all. We believe that everyone is a storyteller and that stories shared from the heart uplift and inspire us and bind us together. Through storytelling, people from vastly different backgrounds, places, and experiences find common ground and connection, which is critical to creating and sustaining healthy, vibrant communities. Our monthly shows often have themes, get people's minds turning on a certain subject. Um, Today's theme is not what I expected. And we have six storytellers for you. John Tilly, John Dover, Emily Spaulding, Carrie Wendell, Al Portia, and then I, Amy Antonucci, will come up to tell one. 
Each of our storytellers is going to be introduced to you by our excellent MC, Pat Spaulding. So let's welcome Pat up to introduce our first teller. Thank you, Amy. And welcome, everybody. It's great to see you out there on this uh, beautiful day with other possibilities. You are here. We are here. And we're going to begin with a story by John Tilly. He is a lifelong Texan who made it to Rye, New Hampshire as soon as he could. <laughs> it only took him 63 years, and now he's my neighbor. Irish by ancestry and lawyer by trade, John has always appreciated a good story. Before law school, he wrote and edited stories as a journalist, and then, as a trial lawyer, he crafted true stories for juries. Yeah, that's good practice. John learned the value of both storytelling and horse trading from his grandfather. Doesn't that sound Texan? Even before he kissed the, the Blarney Stone in Ireland in 2005, tonight he will tell us a story that may not have been influenced by the Blarney Stone, but was certainly inspired by his granddad. Its title is A Day on a Texas Farm. Come on up, John. Thank you, Pat, for the intro, and I will try to revert to my Texas accent for this story. <laughs> my grandfather was a sharecropper during the Great Depression, meaning that he lived on and cultivated another man's land in exchange for half of everything that he harvested. But the war brought on higher prices and bigger demand, and in 1943, he was able to buy his own farm, 40 acres in central Texas. I came along in 1951, and that farm became something of a second home to me. Uh, while vacations were very scarce, weekends with the grandparents were virtually free other than the 20 cent a gallon gasoline that it took to drive there. My father worked in the oil fields in West Texas about five hours away, but it was not uncommon for us for Friday evening after his shift was over to get in the car and drive the five hours to my grandparents' house. One of my favorite memories, and still is a warm memory, is rousing awake in the backseat of the family Ford close to midnight as my father pulled off of the driveway and onto the, the dirt lane leading to my grandparents' house, the knee-high weeds would just rustle under that car, and that would wake me up, and I knew that I was at my grandparents' house. My father would honk the horn, and my grandfather would come stumbling out of the house, buckling up his bib overalls, uh, no shirt on, and wiping his eyes and shuffling us into the house, because the sooner that he could get us settled, then he could go back to bed, because come the dawn, there was work to be done. My grandfather's given name was Clyde Claude, and he married my grandmother, Mabel Maud. <laughs> <laughs> Mabel loved me unconditionally, and Clyde loved me too, but just with a tinge of suspicion. I, I was not a natural farm boy. I much preferred the library to the hay barn. 
I saw no reason to go out into the summer heat of August when there was a perfectly good book to read in my grandmother's den, which was the only air-conditioned room in the house. Now, Clyde could certainly read and write, and he could accurately calculate a crop allocation, but he was not an educated man. He didn't really understand books or have any use for books and was a little bit suspicious of those who did. So more than once, Clyde came storming into the den and looked at me and said, go outside and play. You need to be more like Robert. Well, Robert was my slightly younger cousin who had perpetually skinned up knees and dirty fingernails and the talent for finding trouble anywhere. So I would reluctantly put away my Jules Verne or my Wilfred McCormick and lace up my Converse high tops and go outside into the dust and the heat and mumbling under my breath of the great injustice of it all. <laughs> but still, I wanted to please my grandfather, and I did spend a lot of time with him in his old rattly Chevrolet pickup truck bouncing over dirt roads running one errand or another. And he did, he taught me many things uh, about farm life. Uh, he taught me to be sure to walk way behind the cow, especially at milk times, or to avoid a, a swift kick to the groin. Uh, he taught me never to get in between uh, a mother sow and her piglets. Uh, he especially taught me to be sure to look carefully in the weeds for rattlesnakes before jumping out of the pickup truck to open a pasture gate. And he told me, he taught me, just to stay away from the barnyard rooster, an old Chanticleer that my grandmother called Strut. Now, Strut didn't describe only the way he walked, but his general attitude as well. Strut was the only rooster on the farm among about two dozen hens. Strut knew what his job was, he did it well, and he liked it. <laughs> but you did not bother one of those hens or come anywhere close to him or you would risk an attack with those three-inch sharp spurs on the back of his feet. Now, the weekend that is this story was very early spring, so it was still cool, crisp and cool in the mornings. So after breakfast, I zipped up my jacket to go looking for my grandfather who was working on the fence somewhere. I closed the door behind me, took two steps, and froze in place. Because there inside the yard, between me and the gate, stood Strut. So thinking like a nine-year-old boy would, I thought if I throw something at him, it'll scare him away. So I picked up a few little, little pebbles out of, out of the dirt yard, and I threw them at Strut. Strut didn't get scared. Strut got mad. His neck feathers flared out like a parachute, and he started running straight for me. As he got closer, he spread out his wings, he lifted up his feet and he gored me through my blue jeans and in piercing the skin on my right, my right thigh. My hysterical screams summoned my grandmother, 
who came out the door. She'd been sweeping the kitchen. She had a broom, so she shushed the, the, the rooster away, and she hugged me and coaxed me and cooed at me and finally calmed me down. She put a Band-Aid on my wound and gave me a piece of chocolate pie. I, I, I started feeling better. Now, my grandfather had not witnessed this attack, but he had been briefed about it. So after lunch, which I'm pretty sure included fried chicken, he pulled me aside and he said, he said, I tell you what, son, I'm going to give you a chance to get even with that rooster. I'm going to give you three shots at him with my 22 rifle. Well, okay, I was nine years old. I had shot that rifle a few times under the close supervision of my father at some tin cans or maybe once at a water moccasin swimming across the river where we went fishing, but I was by no means proficient with a real rifle. But this was too good of a proposition to pass up, so I readily agreed. Now, Clyde knew that the possibility of three shots was a mere fantasy because one shot was going to scare that rooster so bad he would run fast and run far, and that was going to be, that was going to be over. But we carefully loaded three 22 shells into the clip, put it in place, cocked it, put the safety on, and we went outside. That gun was really heavy in my hands. We got around the side of the house, and sure enough, about 25 yards away, there was Strut, walking cocksure through the pasture. There he is, my grandfather whispered. I nodded grimly, and I slid over next to the barbed wire fence, and I put that rifle on the middle strand of the wire and was balancing it the best I could and aiming it generally in Strut's direction, and <laughs> I clicked off the safety, and I squeezed the trigger, BAM! <laughs> the crack of that rifle sent hens scurrying and squawking in every possible direction. But Strut, <laughs> Strut jumped 10 feet up in the air, did a complete somersault, and fell down just as dead as a rooster could be. <laughs> I stared open-mouthed at the spectacle in front of me, and then I shouted, I did it, Grandpa, I did it! <laughs> and I turned around and looked up, expecting to see a face of pride and appreciation. <laughs> and I saw a face of absolute stunned disbelief. All my grandfather could mutter was, well, I'll be goddamn. <laughs> I was nine years old. I thought my grandfather wanted me to get rid of that rooster that had attacked me. But he didn't, of course. It was the only one he had. <laughs> my last memory of that day uh, is my grandfather picking up that rooster carcass tossing it into the back of his old pickup truck. Tough old roosters are not destined for the frying pan, especially one with the first name. <laughs> and then he drove away to discard that carcass along some country road, 
and to go looking for a new rooster. Because without a rooster, there are no little chicks hatched on the prairie in the springtime. And that's why he moved to Rye. <laughs> Took him 63 years, though. Thank you, John. Next up, we have John Dover. Now, he is from Northampton, New Hampshire. He knew from an early age that he wanted to be a writer, but he didn't think he could make a living at it. So he earned a degree in psychology from Colgate, and he got a job as a short order chef at Billy B's Steak and Sub Shop in West Philly. Then on to the Methodist Home for Children, where, after being fooled and schooled by young rascals, he returned to education. It seemed preferable to actual work, he said. So he headed to the University of Utah to work on a graduate degree. And after a two-year stint as a guidance counselor at Farmington High, he worked for 36 years at Winnicunnet High School before finally retiring in 2014. Tonight, he'll tell us about his long-ago journey to Utah U to pursue his master's degree in counseling. The road west was a little fraught. As we will soon learn in John's story, 71 Pinto. <laughs> Drive this way, John. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yes, yeah, so I was talking to Ed Muth, one of my coworkers at the Methodist Home for Children. I was complaining about the fact that we had to sleep uh, once or twice a week at the, at the home there with the kids. And he said, why don't you become a guidance counselor? And I, that sounded okay with me. So I applied and had gotten into uh, the University of Utah. And um, a couple of weeks before I was supposed to leave, my mother announces that she had gotten this Pinto for me, the 71 Pinto to drive out there. And um, I was really surprised because like for my college graduation, I got a, a cheap three-speed Japanese bike and, I'm, and now I'm suddenly getting a car. And it kind of dawned on me that, well, after I had graduated from college, I hitchhiked back and forth across the country and I, I wondered, is she giving me the car so that I don't try to hitchhike to the University of Utah? And I thought, yeah, that's probably it, because we didn't really ask questions or talk about things in our family. It was all, it just kind of happened. I was grateful for the car. I arranged to give a ride to uh, a University of Pennsylvania student um, that was going to visit her mom in Ohio. And uh, this was a really good decision because right away I hit it off with this woman. Um, I felt like we had known each other and we're covering all kinds of territory um, within our conversation. And after a while she says, yeah, we've, we've talked about so much, I wonder how you feel about sex. And I'm kind of thinking, I'm wondering why she's asking me this. Does she have ulterior motives here or? I, I didn't know, so 
I did what I usually do when I don't know how to answer a question. I just ignored it and pretend that she didn't <laughs> ask me. And, um, and we kept driving and got into other conversations. And um, so before we get to her mom's in Ohio, she said, yeah, we've talked about so much, but not sex. Not sex. Do you want to tell me about that? And I kind of wanted to say, I love it. <laughs> but I didn't think you were supposed to say that to girls. So I didn't say anything. And we got to her mom's and spent the night on the couch. Next day, I'm off. I'm driving through Indianapolis, I think it was Route 70 maybe, and all of a sudden I hear this loud, blam, ba-bum, ba-bum, ba-bum. And so I pull to the shoulder of the highway as quick as I can, get out, and uh, I have a blowout. Um, so I'm wishing that I knew how to change a tire. <laughs> but then I remembered my father made me watch Arthur Gilman, our next door neighbor in Summit, New Jersey, change a tire in a snowstorm. And between that and the owner's manual, I got the car jacked up. And um, every time a big truck would go by, the whole car would vibrate. So it was scary. But I got the, <clears throat> the tire off, got the spare on, and got the jack back in the car, and I'm off. And I felt great. Like, wow, I, I know how to do something. Um, and the next thing I remember, I'm heading into Cheyenne, Wyoming. And I've been on the road for a long time. I'm tired, I'm really hungry, so I'm just gonna go get out, get a bite to eat, and then get back on the road, which I do. And as I'm heading back the entrance ramp onto 80, I see a hitchhiker there, great big guy. And I, I figured, you know, I've done a lot of hitchhiking, I'll give back a little bit, so I stop for him. And this is a great big guy with a huge backpack and sleeping bag. And I'm thinking, now that I've stopped, how are we going to get him and his stuff into the back of this Pinto, which is full of my own junk? But he's not taking no for an answer. He's there and the door's open. So we rearrange, we push, we shove, and eventually he gets his backpack in and have to slam the door a couple of times, but eventually it closes and we're on the road. And I always have felt that there's a sense of intimacy when you're riding in a vehicle, especially with just two people. Like, you can kind of say anything. And I guess that my rider is also feeling this sense of intimacy because after a while he says, yeah, I wonder how you would feel if I put my hand on your thigh. <laughs> and I know how I would feel about this. <laughs> I wouldn't feel good at all. Um, but I never learned how to say no to anything. So I, and I kind of feel like this guy's way bigger than I am. Like, what if I say, don't do that? And he does it anyway. And I'm like, then I'm going to be in even worse shape. He's already disregarded. So I do what I always do when I can't answer the question. I ignored it. <laughs> and I just pretended that he hadn't asked the question. And that works for about four hours. And then now I'm way up in the mountains in 80, and he says, yeah, I think this is a good time for me to put my hand on your thigh. 
And I'm like, oh my God, I, I've got to do something right away. And I say the first thing that comes to my mind, I blurt out, well, what would you say if I told you I was an alien from outer space? <laughs> and then the weirdest thing happens. The headlights go out. And because it's like way late at night on 80, there's no other cars on the road and there's no street lamps and it's totally black. And neither of us is saying a word. All we can hear is like the sound of the, the vibration of the tire on the road. And I'm thinking, you gotta do something really fast or you're gonna go over the side of the mountain and you'll be dead. And then it suddenly dawns on me, maybe in my anxiety, I accidentally turn off the headlamps myself. So I try pulling the knob and suddenly they go on. And I hear from my hitchhiker this long extended, wow. <laughs> and I'm feeling so good that I'm not gonna die right then. And then he starts talking about, yeah, maybe I did think a little bit like you were an alien. I wasn't really sure. Um, and that, and we just are, go on talking about aliens for hours. Um, no more talk about putting his hand on my thigh. And I feel like, you know, we've really gotten somewhere where our relationship has changed from kind of adversary to ally. But then I'm so tired. Um, I say, I, I gotta stop and get some rest. He's like, fine. So I pull off on 80 and I go to the bottom of the uh, exit ramp and there's like these kind of round metal things across the road, which I think is supposed to keep cows from walking onto the highway. But I'm like, I, I don't care. So I, I go to sleep, um, not even worried about hands or my thigh or anything. <laughs> and the next morning I wake up and the sun's pouring in and like sweat, slobber, get out of the car to take a leak. As I'm walking back in, I'm seeing the Pinto is looking kind of saggy. And I look down and I've got another flat tire. Only this time I don't have a spare. So I explain the situation to my rider and um, we get the car jacked up. Again, he's feeling kind of more like an ally. Um, get it off and I, uh, so I've got the, what was the spare and now I have to bring that into town which I do, um, and get it plugged. And I think the guy gives me a ride back with it. And I get the tire on the car and I'm and on the road again. And I am feeling so good about myself. Like I really know how to change tires now. <laughs> I can do anything. And my writer says, yeah, can you drop me on the west side of Salt Lake City? Cause I'm supposed to be meeting my girlfriend in Vegas who's a stripper and this didn't make a lot of sense to me but you know whatever so I do that and I head back to the University of Utah and I don't have a place to stay that night or anything because I haven't made those kind of arrangements and I'm so I'm looking at the off-campus housing list and this kind of voice inside says you were never really very comfortable in school right and I'm um, like, yeah. And now the voice says, so you're going to spend two years of your time and all this money 
to get a job where you're going to be in a school? Does this really make sense to you? And I can't answer this question, so I don't. Thanks. John, does that mean you're leaving it to us to answer that question? <laughs> well, I guess after uh, 36 years as a school psychologist, you must have learned something somewhere along the line. Next up, we have Emily Spaulding. No relation to me. But Emily spends her winters in Newcastle, New Hampshire, and summers at Lake Winnipesaukee, where she grew up. Um, oh, she grew up in Georgia and Alabama. And she refers to herself as a rural southern girl who longed to be more sophisticated. So she went to the University of Miami on a baton twirling scholarship <laughs> because nothing says sophistication like baton twirling. <laughs> I happen to know that from personal experience. As does Emily. Oh, oh, oh. And now she's here to prove something. <laughs> so Emily's going to entertain you with a little twirling while I finish her, her introduction. <laughs> She found her way to New York City, <laughs> where she and <laughs> pay no attention to what the announcer is saying right now. <laughs> where she worked as a cable TV interviewer, became a general manager, and met her husband Dick. Last year, she published her memoir, Red Clay Girl, which is available locally at River Run Bookstore. And right here, there's a couple copies outside. Emily says that she loves telling stories. Oh, you stopped? Well, I didn't want to interrupt you, but okay. I can. Because you never know whom your story might touch or your baton twirling expertise. So let's hear her touching tale, Furniture on Trial. <laughs> Hello, y'all. How are you? I was... Uh, I grew up in Auburn, Alabama. It's a little small town near nowhere. And it was, uh, I lived, I was a high school student and it was the 1950s. And I have to tell you about my mother. She was frugal. She didn't want to pay money if she could get it free. And she particularly didn't like to buy furniture. And the other thing was she was clever. She could always figure out a solution. And particularly she used that to talk to merchants and say, no, what is your super duper price on that? Or are you giving this away today? And sometimes they would. <laughs> well, my sister was home from college and you may believe this, but she was the head majorette in El Paso at Texas Western. And every Saturday, she would come out in her cowgirl outfit with the fringe little short thing and twirl at the halftime show. Well, there was a lieutenant, an army base, at an army base in El Paso, and he saw her one day and said, you know, I think I would like to get to know her better. So he called her up and said, how about let's go out for supper? And she said, well, if you want to do it on a Friday night when they have that stinky, awful smelling fish in the cafeteria, I'll go out with you. <laughs> and so they went out every Friday night, probably had Mexican food because, you know, El Paso's right over the border from Juarez. And they fell in love over food. And they decided, Hank decided in the summer, now this is summer and it is hot, 
But this story is going to get hotter inside than it is outside. So Hank was coming to size up our family. He said it was for a visit, but we know. And he was going to tell his mom in North Carolina how he measured up. We, on the other hand, were going to size up Hank. So the future of this couple depended on how this weekend went. There was a lot of pressure, don't you think? So he was coming on the weekend on Saturday. And it was the Thursday before. Now, we were a middle-class family and had a nice house and a nice yard and so forth. But we had one thing. We had a sofa from hell. If you put this sofa out at the street with a free sign, nobody would take it. <laughs> it had springs that had gone boing, and you would sit on that. Rocks were more comfortable. Well, my mother on Thursday must have looked at that sofa and said, Mm, this isn't going to make a good impression. And so she grabbed her pocketbook and she went down to Mr. Grant's store. She didn't have to tell us Mr. Grant's furniture store because there was only one store of any kind in town. So she went in and she said, now, Mr. Grant, would if I decided to get a sofa and we didn't have a coffee table or a side table either, if I decided to get those pieces of equipment, could you deliver it this afternoon? That was about 4 o'clock. They closed at 5 then. And he said, sure, Esther, for you, I'll do that. Now, you have to know he was a neighbor. So she went, and she picked out the most expensive sofa, which was unlike her, and the best side table and coffee table. And she said to Mr. Grant, now, I better get home real fast so you can deliver it. And he said, um, now, um, how are you going to pay for this? Are you going to pay cash or check? And she said, well, Mr. Grant, I need to try it for the weekend to see if it fits my decor. And I will be back here Monday morning, first thing, to settle up with you. Is that all right? Well, you know, he had a neighbor and friends. So he said, yeah, I guess so. But he was thinking of something else, I think. So they delivered the, the uh, furniture. And he said to the guys, now, you're off for the weekend, so just after you deliver it, you can just go on home. So they delivered the furniture, and they brought it in. And I saw them looking at that old sofa like, oh, my God. And so they put the furniture down, and it looked great. Instead of middle class, we now look like upper class family. Hank would surely be pleased. So as they were about to take the old sofa out, she said, well, now, just a minute here. I'd like for you to put the old sofa on the screen porch and make sure that you can't see it from the living room. And they shook their heads, and, uh, but they did it, and they went back for their weekend. Now, was that was peculiar, wasn't it? Was she going to really return the furniture and move that old sofa back? I don't know. I don't know. Well, we went around arranging things and getting ready and putting flowers up and so forth. And the next day, Friday, my father and all the local men went for coffee at 10 o'clock. It was like clockwork, and then they would go back to work. Well, as my daddy is parking the car at the grill, there's only one cafe in town, he noticed 
that the car next to him had El Paso plates. What a coincidence. And it had a band around it that said U.S. Army. Well, that was another coincidence. Oh, my God, he said, Hank is already in town. So he went in the grill, and he used the phone, and he called, and he said, Toots, that was my nickname then. I guess it still is. And he said, Hank is in town. He'll be coming shortly. Just want to let you know, bye. Well, we went into high gear. My mother and I went and set up the dining room with our best china and the best silver and the goblets that had cotton bowls on them. And then we got you know, turned on the oven and everything. My sister, on the other hand, who was really smart and really cute, she went in and she curled her eyelashes and she painted them. You remember those eyelash curlers, any of you? And then she put on her makeup and did her hair put on her best sundress and sandals. And about that time, the doorbell rang. So she ran down the steps and said, Hank, and he said, Janet, I couldn't wait to see you. So I drove straight through. And so they gave each other a little hug that you might in front of your family, you know, nothing too affectionate. And then he stepped inside and we said, Hank, what a surprise, you're here early. Well, we could have gotten an Academy Award for that performance because, of course, as you know, we knew that he was going to be early. Well, we sat down and had chit-chat. And then we went into the dining room to have what we call dinner, although it's really lunch. We call it dinner in the South. And now this is what we always had for company dinner, always the same, never varied. It was fried chicken. Now, I had raised that chicken myself in a coop in the backyard. I never liked chicken because of that. <laughs> and then we would have biscuits and sweet tea, not unsweet tea, sweet tea. And uh, we would have green beans that had been cooked till they were mush, because we Southerners love our vegetables mushy. Well, we finished the meal, and Mom's had a brilliant idea, being clever. And she said, let's go and have dessert in the living room. And Hank, you sit on the sofa, and you put your plate on this brand-new coffee table and your drink on the side table. And that's what he did. And I was checking to make sure there were no sales stickers still on there. <laughs> sure, there weren't. And so about that time, he said, Esther, may I call you Esther? And she said, sure, Hank. And he had these great dimples. He said, you know, this is the best meal that I think I can ever remember having. And she was beaming, and he was beaming. And we thought, well, that's it. Well, I looked out the window. I was the only fa person facing the window. And I saw this furniture truck that said Grant's on it going slowly down the hill. And it was looking like it was looking for a number, like maybe it was going to pick up some furniture, that maybe Mr. Grant was smarter than we thought. But then I was thinking, do you think the men are going to come in, these burly guys, and say, Lieutenant, stand up. We need to repossess this sofa and take your plate off and your glass off of these tables because they were going back to the store because they have not been paid for. Can you imagine in a small town how long it would take that to get around? About two seconds. And not only that, that was it 
for Janet and Hank. But then I looked out again, and it kind of gone out of sight. Whew, I took another bite of pie. And then I looked out the window again, because it's getting kind of boring, all this chit-chat. And it was backing up. The truck was backing up and backing into our driveway. And these two new burly guys were lifting up the back, and there was nothing in it. They were here to pick up the furniture. Oh, my God. Psst, moms, what is it? She always talked to me like that because I was the middle child. But I'd gotten used to it. And I said, look out the window. So she looked out the window, and she froze like an ice cube that had been in the refrigerator forever. But then she was clever. I told you that. She said, excuse me, and she walked out the door, and I slipped out behind her because I had got to see what was going to happen. And... I closed the door so no one could hear, and she said, okay, now you guys, you go back to Mr. Grant, and you tell him I am paying for this sofa and these, these uh, tables, and I will be in on Monday morning with a check. In fact, I will be there early when he opens up. Now, you guys, go on now, you hear? Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. And they drove out the driveway and up the hill. Well, Hank went back, not too much else to report about, and Janet went back to school about Two weeks later, they called up and said, we are engaged and we're going to be married this fall. We were all so happy. But moms, at least once a week, would complain. You know, I paid for that expensive sofa and those tables, and he didn't even give me a discount. She said that over and over. Well, what we thought was, Moms, that's the best thing you ever did. Don't you think? Don't you think? Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Emily. I love a happy ending. This is the ending of the first set, but we are going to have three more storytellers coming up after intermission. And if any of these stories have got you thinking that, hmm, I might like to tell one sometime, you don't have to start right here. We have monthly shows at uh, PPM TV, True Tales Live, and we have workshops. And um, each month there's a different theme. You can take a look right on the table where you pay for tickets during intermission. You'll see the themes that are lined up for 2018 and um, if you get a wild hair and think you might like to give it a shot just talk to us check out the information right we we're always looking for more storytellers and more stories so go have yourselves an intermission see you in a bit welcome back everybody it's my pleasure to start with the second set, we're going to have Carrie Wendell. He lives in Exeter, New Hampshire, where he is the designer and technical director for the Department of Theater and Dance at Phillips Exeter Academy. Well-known in local theater circles for many years, Carrie co-founded Generic Theater of Portsmouth. Sound familiar? In 1982. Alongside his many theater involvements, he has always been a visual artist. After majoring in art at Haverford College, he went to the Museum School of Boston for postgrad work. Later, he teamed up with local Portsmouth artists to create 
mural works. Painting big scenes on big walls, indoors and outdoors, all over the place for 13 years. Carrie also teaches Taoist Tai Chi in Exeter. Taoist? Taoist, okay. Taoist. Okay. <laughs> Obviously, I don't do that kind of stuff. His story tonight will take us far from the local arts and theater scene to a long-ago vacation on a Caribbean island. Let's listen to what happened in snorkeling in Dominica. Come on up, Carrie. Or is it Dominica? Dominica. Oh, that's better. See, I, I really screwed up on this one. Should practice. It's been in the news lately because of the hurricane that hit Dominica, and you could hear the commentators struggling with Dominica, Dom, you know, uh, Dominica. Hey. I don't feel so bad. <laughs> so William Blake once said, the fool who persists in his folly shall become wise. I'll let you be the judge after you hear my story. <laughs> so in March of 2003, I took a vacation in Dominica, it's a Caribbean island, it's a nation island, and I visited my friends David and Sarah Slanitz, who some of you may remember were the creators of the Stockpot restaurant in Portsmouth back in the 80s and 90s. So my first day there, David asked me, do you want to go snorkeling? And I said, well, I've, I've never snorkeled, but I love to swim, so sure, let's go. So we hopped in his Jeep and drove to the next town to a bar called Clouds where Melvina rented me some uh, goggles and, and flippers and we headed to Champagne Beach. So Champagne Beach is, is named because of the bubbles that, that percolate up through the fissures in the seabed. So we, we parked the car and took our clothes off and put our valuables in the car and I should at this point point out that I'm uh, hearing impaired so I also took out my hearing aids and put them in the car. We headed down to the shore, it was very rocky. We got to the shore and David gave us the, the ground plan, the, the plan for our adventure. Now what I heard was <laughs> We'll swim around the rock, and then if we have more time, we can go out to the reefs and explore some coral reefs later on. So I thought, okay, that sounds good. And we walked into the water, I put my goggles on, and within a, probably a 30 seconds, the water started getting into the goggles, so I had to stop and empty it out and put it back on, and David checked back with me, I gave him a thumbs up, and we kept on going into the water toward the rock. There was a rock that I saw that looked like it was maybe 15 or 20 feet high, maybe 50, 75 yards ahead. And then there were these other rocks that were more like my height or waist height. So <clears throat> we, I, we got back in the water on our trek toward the rock and water kept on leaking into my goggles. I had to empty it out. This happened three or four times. Each time it took me probably 30 seconds. By the last time, there was no David. I, I didn't see him anywhere. I, lo I looked all around. There was no David. So I relied on our plan, which was 
swim around the rock. So I kept going and I swam for 10, 15 minutes. And still, I, I, there's no David, but I did see a boat and there were some snorkelers around the boat. So I said, okay, he must be there. So I, I approached them and he, he was not one of the snorkelers around the boat. So I had to make a decision at that point. Do I just give up, go back to Champagne Beach, and wait for David to find me there, or just keep on going to the rock? And I'm, I'm not one who quits easily, and I'm pretty stubborn, so I said, sure, I'll just keep swimming. So 15 more minutes, half an hour, I'm swimming. I'm sort of adjusting my a side stroke, and then the other side, and then oh, breast stroke, just a break up the tedium and start chanting to myself, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. The rock is looking bigger, but I don't feel like I'm getting any closer. So um, I kept going. I thought, again, briefly, a sensible thought would have been just turn around and go back. But at this point, the rock seemed closer than the beach. So I said, okay, once I get to the rock, I can rest. So that, that kept me going. I'm swimming, I'm swimming, I'm seeing the, the seabed is starting to become visible and the beautiful coral patterns and the, and the fish of all colors. So that one, that got me a little excited about it. And I finally reached the sort of shoreline where the rock was. But the rock, when I looked up, was about 80, maybe 100 feet high. It was a cliff. And it wasn't an isolated rock in the middle of the water. It was actually the end of a big isthmus that defined Soufrere Bay. I don't know how long I'd been swimming, but I was ready for a rest. So I, I sort of crab walked out of the water and just took a little stock of where I was. And my, my feet were bleeding from the, the flippers that were cutting into my skin. My, my face was, you know, irritated by the mask. So I rested probably for... 10 minutes and then hatched my next plan, which was, I knew I had to swim back because it was, the coastline would have, would have taken me forever. It's very rocky. So I decided to aim for a cliff that was part way back toward where Champagne Beach was. I figured I could get there and then rest some more and then hug the, the coastline. So if I got really tired, I wouldn't be far from shore. So I stuck with that plan, got back in. Within a minute, the stupid goggles started leaking again. And I, at that point, I was really sort of exasperated. I threw a little tantrum and slapped the water and, and yelled. And the, the sound of yelling inside goggles is sort of pathetic, actually. <laughs> but so then I, I got, got the goggles readjusted and swam some more and then started feeling these little stinging sensations and I said, okay, these are jellyfish. And so I'm, I realized after a while I could sort of dodge the jellyfish if I'm uh, always swimming, you know, with my eyes out for where they were. And at some point I got, must have got past them. But my mind was starting to panic a little bit. And I was pretty exhausted, so I, I had to do something with my mind. So I thought, well, I'll explore the, the zen of snorkeling in my mind. So, um, so it's like 
this is not my pain or <laughs> all accomplishment is effortless <laughs> or you and your goal are one. There's no separation. <laughs> but it, it, it got me there. I got to the edge of the next cliff where I needed another rest. And I saw the sun was, was beginning to set. So I knew I had to not rest very long. And, but at least now I could hug the shore. So at this point, it, it was starting to look, again, really beautiful. The coral, you know, the patterns, the fish, everything. And then I started seeing the bubbles coming up. I said, this is Champagne Beach. This, this is what, I, what we were looking for. These, this is that phenomenon. I wasn't at the beach yet, but at least I, was, I knew I was getting closer. So I, I, I swam. I came to some rocks that were sort of protruded out. I swam around the rocks, and there I was where I started. I was exhausted. I just sort of washed ashore and just lay there face down for, I don't know, five minutes. And then I had to figure out my next plan. So I had no wallet, no shoes, no hearing aids. I started walking up to the road, and this man was approaching me. He, I didn't know him, but he came right up to me and said, have you been swimming for six hours? I said, uh, I don't know feels like it. <laughs> and he said, well, I'm going to take you up to the police station. So I got in his car. We got to the police. I explained what had happened to them. They made sure they got the, the right spelling of my name. And I was parched and I sort of trembling. And they gave me, a, gave me water in a Stolichnaya bottle. I was very glad it was water. <laughs> And then um, a reporter thrust a microphone in my mouth and said, are you in shock? I, was, I don't know how you're supposed to answer something like that. <laughs> but my rescuer took me in, in his car. We went back to clouds where I could return my, my rented gear. And Melvina, the proprietor, she, she saw me and shrieked in disbelief and exasperation and relief, all that. But... And I started telling her the story. She called David and Sarah so that they could come to the bar. Um, meanwhile, the townspeople had all gathered at the bar. They were watching the news reports of an American swimmer presumed drowned in Soufrere Bay. There were, the Coast Guard was out searching for me. There were two <laughs> diving companies had their boats out there. In, in hindsight, I realized that there were a couple of boats very far out there. I, you know, At that point, I would have happily taken a, taken a lift or something, but it was very far out. But anyway, so um, we, uh, David and Sarah arrived, and the townspeople were coming up to me and, and touching me, <laughs> and giving me fist bumps. And then an elder man came up, and he said, you will live to be 150 years old. <laughs> David and Sarah came, and we sort of exploded in relief and anger and exasperation and all the emotions. And David and I compared our notes about what had gone wrong. He had said, swim around the rocks, plural. The rocks were like 20 feet in front of and then, And he had gone around the rocks and along the shore, and there 
was a rock. I saw a rock and I heard rock. So my stubbornness, I, I went straight for the rock. So anyway, we settled that question. Um, about a week later, I was in another part of Dominica, up in the mountains, uh, visiting some other friends from New Hampshire at a, a resort. And there was a, a hot spring. And so I was relaxing in the hot spring. There was a, a young Canadian woman who was a naturalist who was working there. And I thought, okay, well, let me just run this story and see what it, see what it sounds like. I'm not letting on that I'm the, actually the antagonist or protagonist, whatever. I said, did you hear about that American swimmer? And she said, oh, yeah, what a stupid man. <laughs> I had to agree. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Carrie. <laughs> I'm glad that you were that stupid man. I didn't do that. Man, that's scary. Next up, we have Al Portia. He and his wife of 40 years live in Lee, New Hampshire. Al has had several different careers, including work as an academic counselor for Granite State College, where he taught courses in critical thinking and statistics. In the latter part of his career, he worked for the Manchester Vet Center, where he counseled returning veterans to more successfully manage and heal their inevitable emotional and spiritual wounds resulting from their war experiences. Al is a musician. Playing piano has always been an important part of his life. Now retired, he takes and gives lessons as well as plays with friends as often as he can. His story tonight visits a moment in his life that changed his understanding of his family's financial stability and ultimately affected his larger worldview. Its title is The Swerve. Come on up, Al. Good afternoon. I'd like to invite you to journey with me back to uh, a fall of 1965. I'm a freshman at Villanova University, and I'm living off campus. Uh, have a furnished room and a beautiful mainline Philadelphia home. No freshman dorm for this guy. And in the driveway of this home, I have a 1965 Buick electric convertible, brand new and extravagant high school graduation present for my father. So you could say at this point in my life that my view of the world was pretty much, was somewhat shallow, pretty much formed. Uh, I knew, what I knew of the world was a result of my family experiences. Uh, but the one thing I was pretty sure of was that an important goal in life was to try to, uh, I realized that you know, the wealth and privilege I grew up with certainly wasn't true of most people. But I assumed that an important goal in life was to try to acquire as much wealth and possessions as you could. Uh, but that was uh, a view that was soon to change. So I came home from class uh, early in November, and my car was missing from the driveway. So I immediately called the police, reported it stolen. They came and took a long, detailed report. Uh, 
And uh, they left, and about an hour later, the police came back. And they said, uh, young man, you might want to call your father and ask him about the car. Well, the car had been repossessed. And so this was the first in a series of events that would uh, really lead to a 180 degree shift into uh, how I plan to live my life. So uh, I completed the term, and then I went back home to my uh, home in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, to discover that my family had gone completely bankrupt. So not only would I not be going back to Villanova in January, but the bank was uh, foreclosing on our home, and we had to be out in three weeks. So things, uh, things were not looking good. Um, I guess it would probably be helpful here to give you a, a little family history, to give you a sense of how some of this came about. My father was a very successful lawyer, a politician, uh, entrepreneur. And we had a beautiful home, lavishly furnished, expensive cars, the best that money could buy, which was typical of my father because not only did he make a lot of money, but unbeknownst to me, he generally spent at least half again as much more than what he made. So in the parlance of Wall Street, uh, you could say he was heavily leveraged. <laughs> and uh, that was about to all come crashing down in the fall of 1965. But uh, before we get to that, uh, as I said, he was a, a successful lawyer and politician, but he really gained most of his substantial wealth in the strip coal mining business. And that's because he met up with this chap named George Pennington, who was, uh, was his partner in these coal mining operations. And George Pennington was a rather unique individual. He was a uh, person who had made fortunes and lost them many times in his life always in mining operations, uh, coal mines, oil wells, gas wells, gold mines. I remember when I was about 12 and a half years old, this has been the mid-50s when they're making tons of money in their coal mining operation, he was over at our home for dinner, and I was recruited to play a game of chess with Mr. Pennington. So in the middle of this chess game, I remember he looked at me and fixed me with his steely glaze and said, I want you to remember, young man, all wealth comes from the earth. Well, you can imagine several years later when I saw the movie The Graduate, uh, the scene with Dustin Hoffman when he's home from college and the family friend says, well, I have one word for you, son, plastics. It definitely brought back that crazy George Pennington memory. Uh, but in any event, uh, in the 1950s, they made a lot of money and then they sold off the coal operation and they went their separate ways. My father went back to practicing law. George Pennington went off to God knows doing what he was doing. But he came back to my father's life in the 1960s. And he had another proposal, another strip coal mine operation. Needless to say, my father was very receptive. I, would, I think it's pretty safe to assume that neither of these gentlemen were environmentalists. But uh, indeed, uh, this time it was going to be a much bigger operation. And uh, as a result of that, my father and Mr. Pennington, they borrowed $750,000 from Mellon National Bank. I looked this up on Google. That would be like borrowing $6 million today. So this was a huge operation. They bought extensive coal mining equipment, coal leases on lands that the ge geological reports indicated there were large seams of coal. They were going to make a killing. They were going to make a fortune. Well, to make a long story short, 
the geologists were wrong. The coal ran out quickly. George Pennington dies unexpectedly. And my father, who really knew nothing about the coal business, he was just a financial investor, he was left holding the bag, which included the $750,000 loan. So much for my plans to get a degree in accounting and go into the coal mining business. But more important was witnessing how this impacted my father. Uh, he was always someone that had drank quite a bit, used alcohol socially, but this, uh, all this trauma, all this business um, challenges sort of pushed him over the edge and he really sort of drifted more into alcoholism. But uh, he wasn't someone to go down without a fight in terms of trying to perpetuate the lifestyle that he was accustomed to. So you may recall I, t I told you that the bank was going to foreclose on our house. And so this is, uh, we're about just the first, first of January, 1966, and they're gonna, we have to be out of the house in a week. And it was at this point in time that the county sheriff comes to the house, and he's going to post these notices that say it would be illegal to remove any of the contents of the house. Well, my father, of course, being in politics all of his life, knew the county sheriff. And he said, you know, could you spare me the additional embarrassment? We're going to be leaving town in a week. The sheriff agreed. At which point my father immediately hired an estate sale company that comes in and they price everything in your house at fire sale prices, of course. And then they have a clientele they call up. Three days later, over Saturday and Sunday, everything in the house was sold. The furnishings, the oriental rugs, the paintings, the, the piano, books by the shelf, a lifetime of possessions sold. So there it was, January 7th. We've got $30,000 cash from this estate sale. We rented a Corvair van. I'm driving, my mom's sitting beside me. My dad's passed out in the back. And we leave town and drive to just outside of Washington, D.C., to a garden apartment complex in suburban Maryland. They rented rooms by the week. Well, in a matter of days, my dad is up in a bot, and he's just going to use this $30,000 as seed money to try to perpetuate the kind of lifestyle that he wants to live. So the next thing I know, we're moving into a bent house apartment in southwest Washington, D.C., seventh and eighth floor of the building, a cupola up to the roof, views of the Potomac River and the nation's capital. Of course, we didn't have any furniture. We're sort of living on orange crates, sleeping bags. So the, the maintenance people of this apartment was like, where is your furniture? My father said, oh, it's coming, it's coming. We lasted there about two months. Uh, a couple of days after that, he went out and he bought three cars. I'm sure he used a lot of cash for a down payment and a bad check. We had those cars for five weeks. And then there was a timber deal with, uh, in Belize of all places. There's that theme, all wealth comes from the earth. And this was with Richard Petty, the race car driver. Of course, that never panned out. I could go on with this litany of crazy stories, and there were a lot of them, but you get the picture. Very dysfunctional, very chaotic. So as a result of all this, I had to seriously alter my worldview. I realized that this pursuit of wealth and all that went with it was certainly not worth the effort. And certainly as I witnessed how it psychologically devastated my father, uh, I realized that this was not a way to go through life. I also at this point in time decided that maybe I should move on and make my own way. So I had to get a job. And I also had to try to maintain a student deferment because 
There was a war going on at that time in Vietnam, as Ken Burns has so artfully reminded us the last couple of weeks. And if you didn't have a student deferment and you were 19 years of age, there was one place you were going, that was Vietnam. So for the next couple of years, I did manage to get some full-time employment. And I was taking courses here and there. But by, well, I guess it was the spring of 1968, I had a total of 31 college credits. And my draft board, uh, they said, you're not a college student. We're making you 1A. And in May of 1968, I was drafted. Uh, April 69 to April 70, I was an infantry soldier in Vietnam. So this was yet another swerve, yet another major event in my life that caused me to rethink how I wanted to live my life. So as a result of all these experiences, George, uh, when, I, when I think about it, what I learned was that George Pennington, with his all wealth comes from the earth, maybe that's true when it comes to material wealth. But I think you have to use a different metric when you're looking at true wealth. Service to other, community enhancement, friendship, to name just a few. So I would like to close just by sharing with you a, a, something my wife does. She has a blog. She's a quilter. And when she signs off on her blog, she always signs off the same way with this phrase that says, to be kind, be grateful, and to cherish each day. Then I think you will always have true wealth. Thank you. Ah, we almost forgot. We're gonna do. We're going to do a raffle after the curtain call. So don't scoot out because you might have won something, and it could be. That pink shiny thing. That, I, I thought I won. No, John. No, John. You, you got to keep it safe for a while, but it's not yours. I'm sorry. Last up, we have Amy Antonucci, our announcer, and one of the founders of Two Tales Live. She has worked with this program since its inception in 2014. And when Amy is not telling stories and running storytelling workshops, she is tending to her bees, poultry, goats, and gardens at her homestead in Barrington, New Hampshire, Living Land Permaculture Homestead. She was recently named Lead Organic Gardener of 2017 by Northeast Organic Farming Association of New Hampshire. Yeah, Amy has her fingers in so many pies that um, I don't know how she balances everything. And they're all healthy and all wealth comes from, from the earth in a good way. <laughs> From 2008 to 2015, Amy stepped outside of her busy schedule to help care for her aging father. This is one of the many stories that she accumulated during that time in their lives. It's about a long and well-planned trip to New York City that didn't go quite as expected. Its title is, What's Important? Come on up, Amy. Amy, 
You gotta take me to see my sister. You just gotta. My father lived in Boston, and his sister Rose lived in New York, and they wanted to see each other. Both in their 80s, with limited driving abilities, though, this was a challenge for them. I understood their frustration, but I had other concerns on my mind. My father had cared for my mother, who had multiple sclerosis, for about 20 years, and she had just died the year before. Since then, it had become clear that he had really neglected his own health while taking care of her. So I had stepped up, and I was taking him to all the doctors he'd been avoiding. We were talking about his heart and his blood pressure, a torn tricep muscle that he had gotten lifting her once upon a time, and his neurological health. I was particularly concerned about lapses in memory that I was seeing from him. I talked to him every day, and I worried even more. His health and his safety were on my mind, not travel planning. But my father didn't fret about himself. He'd tell me, Amy, I'm in great shape for the shape I'm in. <laughs> he worried about his big sister, Rose, whom he loved. They grew up in Brooklyn together during the Depression. She had a love of science and inspired my father. She became a chemistry professor at the college level in the 1940s, and he got a master's degree in physics. It did sound like my aunt was struggling, living all alone in her big house. When I talked to her on the phone, the conversation would start to loop. Amy, how are you? How's the farm? What else is going on? And how are you? And how's the farm? Like that. Uh, I actually didn't think that living alone was safe for either of them. Plus, they were extremely social people. Assisted living with all these people around and events and classes and movies and people to watch over them. That is what I wanted for them. But they had watched their own father slowly die of Alzheimer's in a drab facility in the 1970s in New York. So they were both adamantly against any kind of facility. His worry about her translated into demands on me. My Sicilian father believed that it was my duty to drive him to New York. When I told him or reminded him that he actually got really nervous when he was in a car that I was driving, he simply said, Steve will drive. I guess my partner was being granted honorary Sicilian daughter status, but retaining his male driving points skill, you know, his driving skill points, right? Um, driving to New York was also daunting to me because I was attempting to keep up with my own life, which did include a small farm that my partner and I had just started a few years before. So for about a year, I put this trip off. I told my father, we'll get to it, we're gonna do it, just not quite now. Then in the winter of 2012, both of them took a turn for the worse. My father developed a terrible hip pain and clearly a replacement was in our very near future. 
My aunt fell in her front yard, was taken to the hospital, and in the process of figuring out what was going on with her, some kind of cancer was discovered. So it seemed like it was finally the time to bring them together. Even for just a few days, arrangements were tricky. My first challenge was to find a goat sitter. Uh. I'll bet most of you haven't had to do that, right? <laughs> Luckily, we weren't yet milking, so that wasn't part of the package. We also had chickens and cats that needed care. At least it was winter, so the gardens and the bees could be left alone. Steve got time off from work, although he'd have to keep up with phone and uh, computer. I canceled my schedule of appointments and meetings and classes. And I made uh, arrangements to see my New York cousins while we, were, while we were there as well. And we'd done it. We were ready to go. We arrived to pick up my dad at the appointed time, Steve behind the wheel, ready to make this long-awaited trip. And my father balked. Nope, his hip, hip hurt too much. It wasn't a good time. He wasn't going. All of my reasoning and my cajoling and my, frankly, threatening didn't budge him an inch. Nope, not a good time. Not going to work. Not going to do it now. He planted his feet squarely. He locked even his bad hip. And he could not be moved, just like our goats. <laughs> I was totally exasperated. We had done all the work for this trip that he had been asking me for years to do. And now I couldn't get him in the car. I was angry and frustrated, and I guess my own stubborn streak, which maybe I inherited from him, kicked in. And I said, fine, we'll go without you. And we got in the car and we started driving to New York, even though the whole point of this trip was to bring my father to see his sister. It was a 200-mile trip, and around mile 50, I'd say, my indignation started to subside. And that is when I realized that I actually had quite a bit of trepidation about going, about going to see my Aunt Rose in a nursing home. I had called her not long before, and she had no idea who I was. I feared that I would see her confused, unhappy, agitated, suffering. I also knew that my father was starting to show the signs of memory loss, and seeing what might be ahead for him really frightened me. Watching two intelligent people lose their grip on reality just sounded like a nightmare. So we had hours in the car for me to go from angry and settle into anxious instead. So it was the following day that we actually we're at the nursing home, ready to see my aunt. The staff brought us into a large common room. About 30 people were gathered. It was right around Valentine's Day, so there were pink hearts and cherubs and what have you, decorating everything. And the staff was leading a game of Valentine's Hangman. You know that, that game, you say letters and put them in, I don't quite know how it works, but. That's what they were doing, and the, the group was all sitting looking, but not very lively or engaged. 
really, my anxiety grew at this point. But then I saw my Aunt Rose. I approached her, put my hand on her shoulder, and she looked up at me, and she smiled. I leaned in, put my arms around her, and she hugged me. And I said, oh, you know who I am? And she chirped back, no, who are you? <laughs> and I said, I'm Amy, your brother's daughter. And she said, wow, that sounds important. <laughs> this is not at all what I had expected. She didn't remember me, but it didn't seem to bother her in the least. So we pulled up chairs and started talking with her. Who, so who, she said, did you say you were? I said, I'm your, your brother's daughter, Amy. No, 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 I don't, that can't be right. My brother is younger than me. <laughs> right, but he grew up, he got married, he had kids, and I'm one of them. Well, that does sound important. <laughs> I started asking her instead about my father, who she clearly remembered. And she happily recounted their growing up years in Brooklyn. They would climb the back neighbor's walls and up trees. They played stickball with the neighbor kids. They saved their pennies to go on rides at Coney Island. But, she'd say, have you seen him lately? I, I've been looking and I can't find him. It was the only time she really seemed stressed. She was also really aware of what was going on around her and now and then she'd pause her story and interject something like, Valentine's hangman? What's that? <laughs> or, why are all these gray-haired people in my living room? <laughs> my aunt was an intelligent, accomplished woman, but she had also experienced quite a bit of tragedy. Her oldest child, my cousin Laura, in her teens was diagnosed with schizophrenia. I was still a little girl when my father told me that my cousin Laura had died, and I later found out that she had committed suicide. Now it was like all that was, was just lifted away, and Rose just seemed light and free and happy. She told us more stories of the neighborhood in Brooklyn, the kids and the cousins they knew. Her first trips as a young woman to Europe, especially Paris, which she just loved. Even though she wasn't grasping who I was, she was very friendly and affectionate. She, she held my hand, and at one point, she, she lay her, my hand down and hers next to mine, and she said, oh my God, what happened to my hand? It looks fine to me, so I said, what, what do you mean, Rose? And, well, it, it's so wrinkled, and look at all those veins. I was not sure what I was supposed to do here. I just said, well, you got old, so you have some wrinkles? I think that's normal. And she said, peering up at me, how old am I? I really didn't think I was supposed to answer that question. <laughs> now I was working up an appropriate response when Steve jumped in and said, I think you're 80. And his own memory was failing, her, failing him. She was 90 at this time. <laughs> But that's probably just as well, because she said, 80? I'm 80? How did I get to be 80? 
And I stammered, kind of flustered, and then I just asked her about a que another question about Brooklyn, diverting her, and she was very happy to go along with me back to her youth in Brooklyn and leave behind this terrible thought of 80 years old. I actually wondered at that point what she would have done if I had brought my father there in his 82-year-old skin. When we left, we escorted her back to her room. She shook my arm and smiled up at me. She had always been this tiny little woman. She never hit five feet, and she was always really thin. She just kind of floated along next to me, still impressively straight, though, for 90 years old. I hugged her tiny frame to me when we parted, and she waved, smiled, and said, it was so nice to meet you. <laughs> I knew this might be the last time that I would ever be with her. But even with that sadness, I actually felt as light as she seemed. I had no sense of her as suffering, sad and lost. I just saw her smiling and laughing, maybe more than I had seen her do before. It was really good to get home a few days later. I called immediately to talk to my father and see how he was, told him about the visit. I didn't mention how relieved I was knowing that maybe the road ahead for him wouldn't be as bad as I'd imagined. But I did tell him that she was happy and that she was telling all these stories about him, that that was what she most wanted to talk about. He was clearly moved to hear this and know that he'd been remembered above everyone else. So he said to me, you know, Amy, the truth is I was worried she wouldn't remember me. I didn't want to see her if she didn't remember me. But now that we know she does, could you take me to go see her? <laughs> no, no, wait, 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 wait Pat. Give her, give her a minute. I have a little more to say. Thank you to the storytellers and our wonderful audience. Thank you so much for coming out to see us. Give yourselves a hand. We were so honored to once again be here on the West End Studio Theater stage with the Artist Collaborative Theater of New England. Thank you so much to Stephanie Voss Nugent for bringing us here. Stephanie, we can't thank you enough. Thanks also go out to MC Pat Spaulding, program assistant David Frainer, promotional assistant and photographer Steve Koval, and producer John Levering. We, in we invite you to watch more of us, True Tales Live on Portsmouth Public Media TV, channel 98, Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. and Saturdays at 1 p.m or streaming online at ppmtvnh.org. You can also find us anytime as video on demand on YouTube. You need to search PPM TV True Tales Live and we'll just pop up there for you to watch anytime. You can also be part of our live audience at those broadcasts the last Tuesday of each month, 6 to 8 p.m., PPM TV, 280 Marcy Street in Portsmouth. And if you have a story to tell, we want to hear it. You can contact us 
truthtaleslive1 at gmail.com. That should be in your program, that, that information. And you can also come by our storytelling workshops, which happen on the first Tuesday of the month, 7.30 to 9, also at PPM TV Studios, free and open to all, and we want to hear your stories. And now, you can go, Pat, do it. <laughs> One last chance to thank tonight's participants. <laughs>